Today we're going to talk about waiting. And because waiting is a universal human condition, there have been many songs written about waiting throughout the years. There are literally hundreds. And I have seven on the screen I want to show you just for a couple of minutes. It's good to know that wherever you go and whatever you do, I will be right here waiting for you. It's, it's cool, because basically Richard Marks is like a golden retriever. <laughs> now, the truth is, I like Richard Marks a lot, and I'm not going to name your names, but there's a couple of you I'm very close to that when you found out I was going to a Richard Marks concert, you said, who is that? <laughs> you hurt me, okay? I'm waiting on a star to fall. I've forgotten the rest of those words because it's been a long time. We're waiting on the world to change. I've been waiting for a girl like you. A lot of these are love songs, if you didn't know. Waiting for tonight. I don't know if I can sing the rest. It's J-Lo. I knew you were waiting for me. I don't want to leave my baby alone so heaven can wait. Michael Jackson is willing to give up heaven, actually delay it for a time period so that he can be with his baby. How romantic. How incredibly wonderful. Now, I know I'm dating myself with these songs. A couple of you, again, I won't name your names, but you've said, Ben, you really don't have the best taste in music. Who are you to judge? That's all I want to say. Okay, so... As, as much as we're having fun with this, and as much as love songs, songs have been written about waiting, I don't think we really enjoy it that much. In fact, I think one of our goals, especially in modern culture, is to become more and more efficient and eliminate as much of the waiting process as we can, which is why we're really into high-speed internet and DoorDash and FedEx and if we're being honest, I don't think this really makes us all that much happier. In fact, we still wait. It's inevitable. It's a human condition. It's a big part of our lives. And so my question to you is this morning, what are you waiting for? What are you currently waiting for? Maybe for a package to be delivered? For a vacation that you're really looking forward to? Test results? to come back, to see if you got the job that you applied for, to see if this time around you're able to get pregnant, waiting for your spouse, to see if your spouse will change and repent, waiting for the day when things return back to normal from COVID, waiting for a very difficult season that your child is in, to end wondering if it ever will, saving money for a, huge uh, for a huge purpose and waiting for that day when you have enough money to make the, per the purchase, hospice care for a loved one, you brought hospice in and now you're counting the days and you're waiting for the, the inevitable for you to lose somebody that's very special to you. Waiting is usually uncomfortable because in waiting, among other things, we realize that we're not in control. We never really were. We have very little control over our lives. When we, when we wait, our dreams, things that are important to us, 
are threatened. When we wait, deeper things about us are revealed that we really don't like to focus on. And that's like, where am I putting my hope? Where am I locating my deeper hope? What if this space of waiting, if we understood it appropriately and applied it correctly, what if, what if this space could sanctify us? What if it could transform us like other spaces couldn't? What if God at times has us wait on purpose? If we look at waiting in Scripture, specifically the Old Testament, if you look at the Hebrew word, you get this idea of this cord or rope being stretched or pulled. There's a lot of tension. There's endurance because the authors know that waiting is hard. Specifically, waiting in Scripture as you'll see, is not passive. It's longing, anticipating, expecting, trusting, obeying, relaxing, and hoping. Hoping in God. It's not passive. It's not let go and let God. Think with me for a minute about a waiter or a waitress. When things are busy, the last thing they're doing is just standing around and waiting for something to happen. They're waiting tables. Think of old school courtship. I want to ask for your daughter's hand. May I have permission to wait on her? Yes, I am waiting for something to happen the day that we can start dating or solidifying our our relationship, but I'm doing so actively. For for um, For us waiting, we're waiting on what God has has promised. Remember last week, hope is we believe who, God is who he says he is and that we believe that he is going to do what he has promised to do. There's so much that we don't know. There's so much that we don't see. And we also have to admit that waiting, as we wait, it takes the shape and we're, we're shaped and formed based on who or what we are actually waiting for. As Christians, we are waiting for Jesus to return. We, we know that there's, there's, there's the Advent candles that we live between the Advents, Jesus' first coming and his second coming. We're waiting for him to come again. He came the first time. He's going to come the second time. And so in between these Advents, until then, what do we do? What do we do as we're waiting? Or better yet, how do we wait? And what does that look like? And we're going to say it this way. Waiting isn't an interruption of God's plan. It's a vital part of his plan. Whether we like it or not, delay has always been a part of God's plan. Read, span the scriptures from beginning to end, and you will see that Noah waited a long, long time. And Abraham, and Joseph, and Moses, and Israel, and the disciples in the upper room as they, as they waited on the Holy Spirit to come. It's always been a big part of our stories as God's people and as a human condition. Waiting is an opportunity to remember who God is and what he's done, to remember that this world can't ultimately deliver. I don't know about you, but if I have a problem, if I'm, if I'm sick, if something's wrong with my body, I actually want to feel the symptoms of that. Because the symptoms will then make me go to the doctor so that hopefully I can get treated. 
If we have a deeper ache in our hearts and our souls, we want to know about that, right? It may be uncomfortable, but we want things like waiting to reveal just how much we need Jesus. Just how there's this ache in our soul. There's this God-shaped hole or space in our hearts that only he can ultimately fill. And we want to be able to feel that. If that's true. Now, we've, we've been in Isaiah 40, and we're going to continue there this week before next week we move into the actual gospel account of the birth of Jesus. And we're in Isaiah. Isaiah, the prophet, means, Isaiah means Lord, the Lord saves, and that's important because God's the one that does the saving. We don't do the saving. Isaiah was a prophet to both kingdoms, the north and the south, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. He starts prophesying about 740, and if you read, Isaiah has a lot of chapters, if you read the first 39 chapters, it's littered with warning and the judgment of like exile, and in 722 BC, the Assyrians come into the northern kingdom, and they take the people captive, they exile the northern kingdom. About 20 years later, about 701-ish, the Assyrians are, are knocking on the doorstep of their southern kingdom, about to take them over, and King Hezekiah repents, and you can read about that, and God destroys so many of the Assyrian soldiers, and he temporarily at least delivers them, delivers the southern kingdom. If you read Chapters 40 through 66 of Isaiah, it fast forwards way past Isaiah's actual day and prophesies about, about some things that in, in chapters like late 50s through, through the 60s, they haven't even been completely fulfilled yet. But in chapter 40, it kind of assumes this new nation, Babylon, is going to come in and they're going to exile the southern nation for their sin and rebellion and unrepentance. And so it assumes this, and now that, that long period is over, and then, as we talked about last week, God has some comforting words for his people, for us today. And here's the point. The king is coming. The king is the only one, ultimately, that's going to make everything right. The king is uniquely equipped. He has both the power, he has the will, and he has the tenderness and the love, and so we live again between the Advents. They were looking forward to Jesus coming the first time, although they didn't know the name Jesus. We look back on his first coming and then anticipate his second coming. So this was written to a people that were hurting. They were exiled. They were far from home. They were exhausted. Now there's different ways that we can be exhausted. We can be tired physically and actually feel euphoric where the endorphins are flowing because we just spent a lot of time on the treadmill. So we, we can be tired but not really like drained in a sense. We can, we can have a lot of energy and be antsy and feel mentally and emotionally exhausted. I think that's what you're talking more about here, spiritual exhaustion. There's different ways to be exhausted. And so let's look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27. The people are wondering about God because Isaiah, God speaking through Isaiah, is saying to the, to the people, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? The people feel like because of the exile, because of the, the long nature of the captivity, the people feel like maybe God has passed them over, like maybe God has forgotten about them, or maybe, just maybe, we, we've, we've out-sinned. 
We've reached our quota and we've outsinned God's willingness to forgive us. But notice here that God, speaking through Isaiah, calls them by name. He calls them Jacob and Israel. Did you know that the story of Jacob, he was an actual character in Genesis, his name was later changed to Israel by God. So God is calling his people by name. When you think of Jacob, if you know the story, <laughs> you think of the, the, one of the literal terms for Jacob means heel catcher. So like in the womb, he's coming out, he's grabbing his brother's heel, which is like deeply symbolic of like the lives that they would have when they were, were fully grown. Jacob spends his whole life up until a certain point, building his identity on deceiving other people. And look at God. He's saying, oh, Jacob. He knows, he knows Jacob's name. In Jacob's story, God sets his affection on Jacob. He sets his love on Jacob before Jacob ever repented of his deceiving other people. God sets his love on them, and I think that's representative of his love for Israel, of his love for us. He calls them by name. We'll say it this way. It's natural for us to view God's character through the lens of our situation instead of our situation through the lens of God's character. It's natural when something bad happens to us that we don't want to happen. It's, it's natural to question God, to wonder where he is, to begin to, to put God in our courtroom and begin to make judgments about him when things happen to us. We just have to have this, like, we have this thirst for knowledge and information. We have to know exactly why this happened because we think if we know why, then it will somehow soothe us. And I think most times we're not correct about that. We start blaming God. We bring him into our courtroom. We put him on trial, which by the way actually happens in Isaiah like 41 to 47. God's kind of being put on trial and he's like, he's basically like through Isaiah, he says, this, all this stuff, this exile stuff is not because I'm weak and not because I don't care. This is divinely orchestrated stuff. I did this on purpose because I'm trying to get your attention among other things. But we, we take God to court we challenge his character based on our circumstances. But what about if we flipped it? What if we were going through something difficult? And what if we actually looked to his character, who God is, what he's already accomplished? Think about it through the lens of the Israelites as they could have thought about their history of God sending a bunch of plagues on Egypt, delivering them from slavery, bringing them out into the desert, bringing them to the, to the foot of the Red Sea, giving, see, giving them seemingly no hope, and then parting the Red Sea, they walk, they walk through the Red Sea, and then it was collapsed on their enemies. Think about ex Exodus 34, what Moses is saying as God passed before him, how God is compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love. And the point is, we can trust in him as we wait we can trust him as we wait. We can trust in who he is, what he's already done, and what he has said that he's going to do. And so this call to wait is difficult because it asks us to slow down, to remember who God is and what he's done, 
and what he's promised to do. To worship God as the one that's in control, we certainly don't have much control at all. Verse 28. Have you not known... Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint. You'll see this faint and weary word repeated. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He calls us by name. He doesn't grow faint. He does see. He does care. So then what's he doing? Again, this was divinely orchestrated, the captivity. And the exiles. So he's in full control. What else is he doing? He's waiting. He's waiting and he's restraining himself. You see, our God, unlike us, our God doesn't have sick days. He doesn't take days off. He doesn't act impulsively in anger. He's different. He doesn't miss things. He doesn't overlook people. He doesn't go, oh, I forgot to forgive them. Darn it. In fact, if you read through the book of Hosea, God is in inner turmoil because he loves his people, but he knows that they are practicing injustice, and he can't let injustice and sin go on forever, and he has to do something. But in Hosea, what he does is instead of ushering judgment, he ingests it himself and puts himself in turmoil. The Hebrew word is hapak. He hapaks himself. See, this is what we need. This is the the word of encouragement that we need this morning. For those of us that are exhausted and discouraged, is it possible that we've taken our eyes off of God? Because what I think he's asking us to do is to take our eyes off of our situation. We know what our situation is. To take it off our situation and to put our eyes and to fix them on him. It's a perspective shift. Isaiah is saying to Israel, Israel, return to what you know. Return to what you know. We do this in counseling a lot, lot, right? Take what you know and apply it to what you don't. There's a lot you don't know. Control what you can and then leave the rest. Leave what you can't control. Control what you can. Take what you know. Apply it to what you don't. Verse 29. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. You see, all of us are limited, and life is going to take us all beyond our abilities to be able to intervene or fix it. And when life does that to us, we tend to get panicked, and we tend to get exhausted. Maybe we realize, my hope wasn't really in God at all. My hope was in this relationship or this career or my health or creature comforts. My real hope was anchored in those things working out. And when that rug was pulled and when something fell through and didn't work out, I realized, wow, I've been a Christian a long time. But my hope was anchored. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay to have small H hope in things working out and getting jobs and being excited about those things. taking joy in your family and in relationships. When you come to those moments where you realize my big H hope was anchored in like something that wasn't God. I think that that can be a good moment. It can be a difficult moment. It's, it's, It's dangerous, but it happens as we wait. But it says here that God, it, 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 he delights in a way, he delights 
in our weakness. He isn't laughing at us. He isn't watching us squirm, but he delights in our weakness. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he's pronouncing blessing on the poor in spirit, on those that are mourning. Because if they're mourning, then he's going to comfort them with his comfort, right? This, this, is, a, this is a great moment and opportunity. We're uncomfortable. It's not where we're going to be. Blessed are those of you who are persecuted for my name's sake. He isn't laughing at you because you're persecuted, and yet there's something that's happening in those moments that, that he can get your attention. There's something happening that God almost delights in. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Elizabeth Elliot said it, said it best. I was reading, and she said, the hardest thing to give is in. The hardest thing for us to give is in. And yet we see Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, he's boasting in this. He's crossed that checkpoint where he's just, he's delighting in his weakness. Not in his weakness alone, but who God becomes to him in the midst of his weakness and his brokenness. Doors fly open that were shut before then. He gets to know God's grace and his power. When I am weak, I am strong. There's something that happens in our brokenness in our weakness, in our waiting, I don't know that can happen other places. See, weakness isn't our problem. It's really not. It feels like it is, but it's not. It's that we are delusional about our own strength. We are prideful. We make mistakes. We feel like, I should have never messed up, or I have to fix everything. And then when we don't, we feel ashamed of who we are. We feel afraid that we're going to get exposed. Maybe people will realize, I can't figure everything out. You know me well enough. You know there's a lot I can't figure out. Tino, don't laugh. <laughs> Greg, you either. <laughs> God loves and delights to meet us in this space, though. There's something here that he doesn't just whoosh away. He doesn't door dash away. He doesn't FedEx it away. He doesn't high-speed internet it away. There's something that happens in this space that, that we, we've got to learn to be okay with or we have to really try to lean into if we really want to know God, if we really want to anchor our hope in him. I saw this quote by Kyle Eidelman. Um, the book is called The End of Me. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. He says this, It's not too late, and it never has been. And there's never been a better time, a more perfect time, than the present moment. That's always the one in which he wants to meet you. You need only to ask for help. Easier said than done. The more helpless you are, the better. The more open you will be to the help that only he can offer. He meets you right there at the end of yourself. I've come to the end of myself and my abilities and I start to freak out. I start to panic. I get exhausted. And God goes, there. Right there. That's exactly where I need you to be. Because the end of ourselves is the beginning of deepening intimacy with God and anchoring our hope in him and relocating our hope 
and the only one that can satisfy us. Verses 30 through the first part of 31. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. This is Isaiah's talking about us at our bests. Adolescence. They have like endless energy, right? I go downstairs every Sunday for engagement hour, junior and senior high, energy. Lots of it. And I remember just how, actually I don't remember what it was like because I can't even connect to that anymore. But wow, they have a lot of energy. And I try, I'm like, for an hour, I can do this. I can meet their energy. I can, I can match it. And like, it's going to be great. And then sometimes I succeed and sometimes I don't, but it's only an hour, right? I can go home and I can crash. Whereas they probably just keep bouncing off of walls and running and jumping and diving and whatever else they do. This is us at our best Symbols of strength, and yet there's a, there's a helplessness, there's a limitation that we have because everybody gets tired. We, we sleep a third of our lives or more. We need rest. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but we are, we are limited. In some ways, we are helpless. And, and, and in my waiting, hopefully God has entered that space, and, and I'm realizing I've got to give up my right to be in charge if I really want to anchor my hope in him. I got to give up my right to call the shots. I got to deal with this thing that I do where I just think, yeah, if I was in control, I'd do things different. I'd do things better. I'd care for people better. We do this stuff. We do these mental gymnastics in these moments. The shift is to treat God as king to treat God as ruler. There's so much that we don't know and that we can't see. My eyes go from me, Nate calls it navel-gazing. I always love that term. It goes from navel-gazing, or my eyes are fixed or anchored in something that might be a good thing, and I've, and I've turned it into an ultimate thing, like my career or a relationship, and I shift and I relocate my eyes to God or, or, or to Jesus. I treat him as king. Everything else falls into place. I'm not saying my circumstances are great. I'm talking about my inner life primarily. I relocate that hope. I remember what he's already done, what he's promised to do, and somehow, some way, I get strength in the midst of my weakness and helplessness. I get renewed. Renew in Hebrew means to be refreshed, restored, to make an exchange, my weakness for God's strength. I do this shift, right, of like, I I think we've done it before, it's hard to hold on, it slips through our fingers, but we do that shift where it's like, I'm focused on so many things and I'm obsessing and I'm ruminating on so many things I can't control, and yet in in this moment, at least for a moment, I'm able to let go of the things I can't control and relinquish them to the one who is in control. I'm just able to do that and I'm able to focus on the things that only I can control and it just, there's a freedom. There's a liberation that comes with that when I can can do that and maybe the point is I need to practice that over and over and over again because there's just something in me that likes to try to seize all of the control. In some way, I think that my life's going to go better. But I know better than that. 
No, so much better than that. We'll say it this way. It's, uh, it's in our weakness, not our strength, that God empowers us. It's in the waiting, not the fulfillment, that God renews us. Fulfillment is good. We, we pray for fulfillment. We pray for answers, right? We pray for God to move. That's good. I'm not saying that's bad. But in this section here, it's the waiting and not the fulfillment where something awesome happens, where, we, where our spirits are renewed. It's in the weakness, not the strength. It's as we wait. Something happens here. Weariness is almost a prerequisite. Why? Because I have this tendency to go like Moses and God where they're going back and forth and Moses goes, I'm not eloquent of speech. I'm not eloquent of speech. I don't have what it takes. And God doesn't go, Moses, you're smart and you're handsome and people like you and you're capable. God doesn't say any of that. God says, I am. I am. Moses goes, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. God says, I am. I don't think God changes the way that he deals with you either and me either. I think he deals the same way with us. But I'm not, but I am. But I can't, but I am. I'm not saying that God's going to give you everything that you want. Again, I'm talking about that inner renewal and strength and peace, anchoring your hope, relocating your hope, fixing your eyes on him. Something happens in those moments. He's... He's strong. I'm weak. My faith is all over the place. It's strong in one moment and weak the next. And I'm a leader. I get paid to be a Christian. You ever think of it that way? That's kind of weird. My faith wavers. I'm embarrassed. It's not the amount of faith. It's the object of our faith. It's... We have to wait on God for this to really take hold. We have to wait on God. If we wait on other things, I understand because I do it too, but if we wait on other things that aren't God, it's not going to deliver. We're going we're to wind up weary, exhausted emotionally and spiritually. That's what's going to happen because those things can't give us what God only can give us. God wants to change Israel more than he wants to change their circumstances. He wants to change you and I more than he wants to change our circumstances. I'm not saying don't pray for your circumstances to change. I'm saying there's something more important than our circumstances. You have to be careful, too, because, because God becomes a means to an end, right? So I, re I really want this relationship to work. This person-to-person -person relationship. I really want a, the acceptance and the approval. I'll do anything to get it. And if God can help me get it, I'm on board. I'll worship him. But as soon as God, I realize he's not interested in helping me get that thing that I really want, then I'm out. I might still go to church and I still might put on a smile, but I'm out. In those moments, we realize, and maybe in the waiting or in the failure, we realize that my hope isn't anchored in God. People are in exile. God has orchestrated this. He wants them to cry out and declare just how much they need him. He wants to reform them. Uh, second part of verse 31 in Isaiah 40. 
They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The picture is of this eagle, this powerful eagle that's gliding way high up in the sky. And and this eagle has this perspective. And I think that's part of what Isaiah is saying. There's this higher plane perspective that's available to us not, all, not knowing everything God knows, but a higher perspective, a better perspective. And yet, we have to come down from that perspective when we have to live in the here and now. And so I think Isaiah goes to running, which is like striving toward a goal, to be enthused. And then he moves to what I think is most important here, which is walking. In Hebrew, it means to walk to, from a place to a place. It means how we live as well. It's about endurance, this is, this is the normal rhythm of life. This is the hardest part because these aren't the highs of a soaring eagle. Isn't that a casino, soaring eagle casino? Um, that, that makes sense, right? But it's, the eagle soars, right? And it's got this perspective. But it's not that. And it's not even running. It's, it's, it's walking. It takes endurance. It's getting that energy and perspective to actually develop good habits, to, to live in the moment day by day. Part of God's renewal when we anchor our hope in Him is He gives us strength for the day. Even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, He's with me. And even if my enemies are surrounding me, God's preparing a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And even if the mountains are crashing into the heart of the sea, I'm told to be still, not because I have all the requisite skills, but because God does, he's capable, he's in control, and I can trust him. This is the rhythm that we have to get used to. We may not get all our stuff fixed here. This world is desperately broken. Our hearts are desperately broken. That's not the primary work that God wants to do. It's not why Jesus came the first time. Walking. Rhythms. Being in the moment having the chance to see where I've located my hope, to uproot my idols, to exchange my, my shame for Jesus' righteousness, to realize that life apart from God, when I anchor it in something else, it makes me weary. And that's a good thing because I get to relocate my hope. If we learn to wait on Jesus, it may be difficult, but it will never end in ultimate disappointment. It will never end in ultimate disappointment. Ben, how can you be sure of that? I can be sure of that because when God saw his creation running amok, destroying their world and destroying each other and destroying their individual selves, the author of all of history wrote himself into history. And he did it for the joy of set before him. Jesus didn't do it reluctantly. And Jesus came into this world. And it says, we don't serve a high priest that's unable to sympathize or empathize with our problems. He has been tempted in every way as we are, yet there's something special about him. He never sinned. This is a very special, unique person obviously more than a person and Jesus lived in this broken world and he never sinned and he used his power not to free himself not to vindicate himself but to stay the course and endure 
the cross. And this is what the author of Hebrews says about Jesus' sacrifice for sin. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never, ultimately, take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits. He waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Do you know that no priest, when they were on duty, ever sat down? No priest ever sat down. Jesus offers one sacrifice for all time and sits down. Why? Because it was a perfect sacrifice. Why? Because it's finished. It's finished. Yeah, Ben, I, I'm struggling because I feel like I'm hidden from God. I feel like God has forgotten about me. Maybe he has abandoned me. Maybe he doesn't care about me. And this is the point of the gospel. This is what's so crucial Jesus took that on. Jesus was temporarily abandoned by God and forgotten by God so that if we have faith in Jesus, we know that's never going to be a thing. That's never going to be a thing that God does to us because he temporarily put that on Jesus. He temporarily rejected and abandoned Jesus even though Jesus had never, ever sinned. There was this great exchange that had been made. And if I find my identity in Jesus, I might feel like God doesn't care and he's forgotten, but I, I can know that he has it. A hundred percent. I can know it. And it's so important as, as Christians that we go back to this again and again. Jesus was rejected so that we would never have to wonder. And so I want to finish here with a couple of slides before we sing our last song. But I want to take our time with this a little bit. If you want to take pictures of it, ask me for the slides later. You can. Waiting for Jesus means, let's just take this in together. I tried to give you as many practical things as I could. Waiting for Jesus means I control what I can control and I leave the rest to him. Easier said than done. But I practice controlling what I can control and relinquishing the rest to him. As I wait for Jesus to come back and bring justice, make the world right, this is what I'm doing, right? I view my circumstances through the lens of his character. Why? Because I've, if I view it through the lens of my circumstances, then I'm going to get all twisted up in knots. I'm going to get really confused. God can handle our doubts. God can handle our fears. God can handle our anger. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm going to get all twisted up and turned inside out. I'm viewing my circumstances through the lens of his character because I can trust him. He loves me. He sees me. He knows I can trust him. He came the first time, which means he's going to come again. He says he's going to come again. He is because he came the first time. I remind myself that this world cannot deliver. All of the presents under the tree, all of the raises and promotions I get in my job and my career, all of the love that I have for my family, this world ultimately cannot deliver. It can't. I never take matters into my own hands if it violates his will for me. If he wants me to offer forgiveness to somebody, I'm going to try to find a way to offer forgiveness to somebody. I'm not going to withhold. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands when it comes to his specific will for my life. And if I understand it, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to wait for him to fill that space in the way that he wants, how he wants, when he wants. 
I identify and uproot the idols in my heart, good things that I've turned into ultimate things. I've, I've relocated my hope to a person or a group of people or a career or creature comforts or whatever it is, and I'm just practicing being aware of those, uprooting them and putting my eyes back on Jesus. I confess my sins to Jesus, and I resurrender. Resurrender might be my favorite worship song. I re-surrender, re-surrender, not in order to stay saved, but because I already have been saved and I have a relationship with Jesus and I want to re-anchor my hope in him. I want to relocate my hope so that I can have that peace that passes all understanding. Next slide. I guard my heart against despair because I'm a follower of Jesus. I don't let my ruminative thoughts just take me completely away from his goodness and his truth. I'm just guarding my heart against it as best I can. I embrace, I re-embrace his promises for now and later. What he, what he has said that he will do, what he is doing now, what he has said that he will do, I just re-embrace them. I, I have this rhythm of things that I say each Sunday uh, when I'm preaching or to myself during the week. He's with me, he won't waste this, and he won't leave me in this forever. He's with me. He won't waste it. He won't leave me in it. I intentionally cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, things like generosity. I'm cultivating these things, not in order to be saved, but because I already have been saved. I give regular sneak previews of God's eternal kingdom everywhere I go. This is SBC. This is who we are as Christians. We give sneak previews to Sparta, to Northern Kent County, around the world. We want to give sneak previews in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our workplaces. We want to roll up our sleeves and we want to be good listeners. We want to showcase patience. We want to showcase sacrificial loves because we want to, we want to give sneak previews. We want to invite people to come and see Jesus. Come, come watch The Chosen with me. Come and see. Come to Sparta Baptist. Come for the Christmas Eve service. Come and see for yourself. Come and see who Jesus is and what he's done for me in my life. I meditate on Jesus' first coming. And I anticipate his second coming. His first coming was primarily to offer us a sacrifice, to be our substitute, to offer us forgiveness for our sins. The second time he's coming back, in judgment and to bring justice and to bring a new world order and to bring peace on earth we long and we wait for that day but we do so actively trusting cultivating that let's stand and sing together